So last week, we dove into uh, these first two and a half verses of the book of Hebrews. Remember, Hebrews is a book written to Hebrews. Uh, Those are Jewish people. But specifically, this is a book written to people who were Jewish people, Hebrew people, but were putting their faith in Jesus. So So really, the bigger identifying characteristics than them being Jewish is them being Christians. And so that's where we, as people who are exploring faith or have put our faith in Christ, this is where the playing field is level as we come to this book. And the author of the book, he kind of starts out this book, not really like I'm writing a letter, so to speak, but he almost starts it out like a sermon. And he starts it out with this big, grand introduction. And he kind of talks about some of the things that he's going to start pulling apart and spreading out and explaining the deeper he gets into this whole 13 chapter book that is the sermon to the Hebrews. And last week we discovered that there were really five things that he said, this is the things that I need you to see and understand about the identity of Christ. And they're right there in that passage that we read. They said he is the inheritor. When it said he is the heir of all things, that that everything is gonna go back to Christ. He is the inheritor. He's also the creator. It said by him, the whole world was created. He's the radiator, not like the thing you got in your car, but he is the radiance of the glory of God. He shines forth. If you wanna know what the father's like, look to Jesus because he is the revealer. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And then he said it, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he is the one who sustains the very life, the breath you just breathed in and the breath you just leaved out. He is the sustainer of the world. So those five things were right there. Theologians and scholars will call these five things Jesus's cosmic identity. So the author of Hebrews is putting this out there and saying, this is Jesus's cosmic identity. And wouldn't you know, there's not just five, there's actually seven. And we're gonna talk about the last two today. The first five, these ones up here, talks about Jesus's cosmic identity. The last two is gonna be talking about Jesus's priestly identity. We're gonna talk about how Jesus is both purifier and king, purifier and and ruler king. So I would invite you to take as many notes as you can as we get ready to dive into who Jesus is. And the whole reason, again, we as a church at McDonald, we're gonna get into the Bible, we're gonna discover who Jesus is because when you know who Jesus is, then life's questions can finally be answered. Until you know who he is, you will never know who you are. Until you know who you are, you will never know really what to do. So Hebrews 1.3 says this. He's a radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is where we're at today. We're going to get into the next two that will round it out and make it a good, complete seven. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So he is one. He is the Jesus who made purification for sins. So we would say, again, giving him our identity or the identity here, he is purifier. He is the one who makes purification for sins. Now, in order to understand what in the world we're talking about here, we got to understand what was going on in the minds of, of people who were Jewish as they heard this. Now, in order for them to have purification, to be forgiven of their sins, they had to sacrifice an animal. And now what they would do, and this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin, and they start sowing fig leaves together. Now, fig leaves are what? Plants or meat? Plants, yes, vegetarians, way to go. They sow fig leaves on, and then God shows up, and God's like, this is bad. And he finds Adam. He's like, Adam, what happened? And Adam's like, this woman that you gave me, <laughs> typical male, always deflecting, not, taking, not blaming the woman on everything. You know, This woman, you, you uh, really not blaming the woman, really blaming God. Like, this was your idea, God. 
And then God talks to Eve and Eve blames the snake. It's just this, you know, everybody's pointing fingers at each other. Bottom line is they messed up and they sinned. They rebelled against God's command. And also in the midst of this story, one of the things that you kind of just skip over if you're just reading the narrative is God says, okay, those fig leaves are not going to cut it. What actually is going to have to happen is a living creature is going to have to be cut. Blood is going to have to be shed. Uh, shed. And so they take animal skins. You can read it right there in Genesis. They go, plants aren't going to cut it. And so they have to shed blood. Animal skin is now what they have as a covering. And it's all foreshadowing there from the very beginning of Genesis to what will happen in Jesus, that blood must be shed for sin to be covered. And the Hebrews knew this. That's why every year they would have to go in and they would have to have an animal that would have its blood shed. And that would symbolically cover the sins that they had committed that year. And so when it says Jesus comes on the scene and is now the great purifier, what that's pointing forward to is Jesus is the one who makes us pure before a holy and pure God. He's the one who washes away all of our sin, all of our stain, all of our guilt and all of our iniquity. So Jesus is the purifier. Now, what you need to understand about this is when this would happen in the Old Testament Hebrew way of doing it, you would have a priest and what the priest would have to do, and you do this on behalf of the people, the priest would have to go get a resource outside of himself, bring that resource in and then slaughter that resource, usually a lamb, and that blood would cover the sins. And the purifier that we have in Jesus, this one makes Jesus a better and truer, a truer and greater, a more supreme priest. We're going to unpack this a lot in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the supreme high priest because he not only is the priest who purifies, but he is also the source that the purification comes through. He doesn't go outside of himself to find a lamb. He becomes the sacrificial lamb himself as he's also the priest who does the intercession. He is both the sacrifice and the sacrificer. And he's able to make us pure because that's his identity and that's who he is. Now, in order for us to understand this idea of purification, and again, we, we want to be pure. Unfortunately, in most of our church contexts, like Christian American cult, church culture, when we hear purity, all right, if you grew up in the youth groups like I grew up, raise your hand if when you hear purity, you think of sex. It's okay, we're church, we're family, you can admit it, okay? Like that's what we all, man, we were, we, we had the events, the silver ring thing. You know, some of you, your daddies gave you purity rings. And, that, and again, I'm not bashing any of that, but somewhere down the line, when we started to think purity, all we think about is, is I just don't have sex till I'm married and then I'm pure. But it's such a bigger deal than that. And it's so much more multifaceted than just abstinence. It's an inside thing that becomes an outside thing and affects every aspect of our being. And so in order to understand purity, we gotta be able to get, um, some, some big truths. And the biggest truth we've got to get is there's only one way to purity. It's not by you doing better. It's not by you being good. There's only one way to purity and it is by and only by the blood of Christ. So if we're going to get that, we've got to be able to kind of get our mind around these words, salvation, justification, sanctification. And I'm sorry, these are somewhat, you know, complicated church words, but let me explain them to you. All right, first of all, what you need to understand is you're not just a body, okay, that just feels some things. The most real and the most true and the most of God part of you 
is not the part that wakes up with bedhead. It's not the part that's kind of starting to feel hungry right now. The most real and true of God part of you is this thing that the Bible tells us is your spirit. God created every one of us. When he breathes life into Adam and he breathes life into Eve, what's happening there is they're given an eternal spirit. This aspect of them that's gonna spend an eternity either in hell, separated from God, or in heaven with God the Father, okay? So you have an eternal part of who you are. Your body is gonna waste away and die, but your soul is going to spend eternity somewhere, all right? Now, where salvation takes place is right there in your soul. So at that moment in time, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and you surrender to him, you go through the waters of baptism, you give your life to Christ, that full surrender moment where you surrender to Jesus, what the Bible tells us, that is the moment when our souls receive salvation. We're saved. And in legal standing, we are saved before a holy, righteous God. The GPS coordinates of your soul, where it's gonna end up at the very end, is in heaven with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's salvation. But we all know and have experienced, like some of you have kids who recently have been baptized. Your kids who maybe recently have been baptized, they didn't just pop out of that water just floating downstairs. What do you want me to do today, Father? I surrender to your will. Like they were still kind of little jerks. Like they still had some work to do, right? None of us are there. <laughs> yeah. So, so here, here's what I'm saying is we all can grasp this reality and truth that I can be fully saved. I can, I can have salvation, but I don't just boom, wake up and I'm, and I'm great. The Bible talks about two concepts. There is a, a spirit that you have, and that's the eternal part. It's going to spend somewhere for eternity. But then the Bible uses this word soul. And sometimes it's soul, sometimes it's heart, sometimes it's mind. What this is referring to is your internal operating system. This is those parts of you that think the way you think, that want to drink what you want to drink, that want to look at what you want to look at, want to do the things you want to do, like make the decisions that you want. This is your operating system. Now, when you receive salvation, your soul's GPS coordinates are changed from hell bound to heaven bound, but you still have this old operating system. This is where the process of sanctification comes in. This is where, okay, there is this process. I'm in Christ now, I've been set aside for him. He's molding and shifting and changing me more and more into who I was created to be. And again, who you're created to be is not a better version of yourself. You were created to be Jesus. The best version of yourself is still hellbound. You don't need a better version of yourself. You need a new version of yourself, true version of yourself, Jesus, all right? So that's salvation, that's sanctification. Now this middle ground here, this is justification. And this is what we need to understand. This is where all this whole purity thing comes in. At the moment of my life right now, where I sit and where I stand, I am in Christ, I have received salvation. I am still in the process of sanctification. I am not fully Jesus up here. My wife would attest to that. My kids would attest to that. The elders of our church and the staff would attest to that. And some of you who have bumped into it, you wouldn't go like, oh, no, he's not, you know, he ain't Jesus. But at this moment, I have received justification. When God looks at me, he knows I am not fully who he needs me to be. But I am justified before a holy, perfect, righteous God because of Jesus and how he's made me pure. 
Justification is kind of an easy way, maybe it's oversimplification, but an easy way to be able to understand and remember what in the world does justification mean? What does it mean to be justified before God? To be justified means it is just as if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. So when God looks at you right now, if you're in Christ, you're justified before him. He looks at you just as if you've never sinned, just as if I've never sinned. But at the same time, he knows you're going to still sin. At the same time, he knows you're still a work in progress. So we gotta be able to understand these three things. And I wanna try to give you a little bit better uh, definition of sanctification so we can get this because this is where we'll be able to hopefully grasp what in the world does it mean to be purified, but also at the same time being made pure. Sanctification is a progressive. That means it's ongoing. It doesn't, it's not just something that boom, God snapped his fingers and it happened. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man. God doesn't just make this poof and happen. He works with us. We work with him that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more full of Christ. It's purity and power. And the reason I put these in parentheses is this. When you receive salvation, salvation frees you from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is what? Death, full separation from God. When you receive salvation, you're freed up from that penalty. But again, you, you people who have kids who have recently been baptized, they've received salvation. They are still susceptible, just like we are as grownups, we are still susceptible to the power of sin in our lives. That's why many of us have, know we've re- received salvation. We, we know we've gone through the waters of baptism, but we still mess up and we stumble in sin. That's because we are still bumping into the power of sin in our life. So sanctification is this continual progressive work of God that makes me more and more free from sin's power. It's this progressive thing that happens in my life where the next time I taste that sin, it starts to taste more disgusting than it did the last time I tasted it. So much so that I can't even be around it. I can't even smell cigarette smoke on your clothes before I'm like, ooh, that's disgusting. I don't want anything to do with that. It becomes repulsive. And sanctification is a process of sin losing its power in your life. Simultaneously, it's you being free from the sin, but then more and more full of Christ. And when Christ is more and more full of your life, we are emptying the sin out of our life. We're being more and more full with Christ. What happens there is we are being full of Christ. And that is purity. That's just pure love of Jesus. Who he can be in in a a meeting with, with somebody of the opposite sex and all he sees him as, as a brother or sister in Christ. That's all he sees him as. He's someone who can get the juiciest gossip and go, that's secret safe with me. And he frees us because we're more and more full of him. We're filled up with the purity of his love. I'm not loving you with ulterior motives. I'm not loving you to get something out of this. I'm loving because I love you. I'm willing to go to the back of the line. I'm willing to not sit shotgun. I'm willing to let you get the uh, adulation for all the things that did at work, even though it was a group project and you didn't do anything. So he, he gives us purity, but then he also gives us power. Power to tell Satan where he can take it. Power to resist. Power to kill and crucify our own flesh. That's, that's what's happening in sanctification. There's a passage in Hebrews, and we'll eventually unpack it much more than we were able to today, but Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, it really brings this to light. It says, but when Christ offered 
for all time, a single sacrifice for sin. That's the whole, him giving his life, him being the sacrifice uh, as the lamb and the sacrificer as a priest. After he did that, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should become his footstool. Now lean into this last one. This is actually verse 14, we're at the four. For by a single offering, this is Jesus dying once and for all, for all sins, past, present, future. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what this means is that all your sins, I know this sounds like a deal that is way too good to be true, that by his one single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That means if I'm in Christ, I've been set aside for holy purposes. And as I've been set aside for these holy purposes, I am in the process of being sanctified. I have been one who receives the perfect purifying blood of Jesus over my life for all the sins that I did commit, all the sins that I'm in right now, and all the sins I will commit, which should be mind blowing to go, this Jesus I have (laughs) took my stupidity into account when he saved me. This Jesus who I am in knows how much I was gonna struggle with this addiction, even though I was saved. This Jesus knows how the sins of my past are gonna creep into my future and he loves me anyway. Now, if you hear that and you go, oh cool, Jesus forgives me all my past stuff, my present stuff, and he even forgives me all the future and he once and for all like did all that stuff, I'm just gonna go do what I wanna do because I'm forgiven anyway. If you've done that, man, if that's where you're at, you don't get it. And then you other people in the room who are going, oh, you better be careful preaching that, Trent. People are going to take advantage of that. Listen, we serve a God who died on a cross for us. He fully understands that we're going to take advantage of him. That's not a shock, okay? (laughs) And um, to quote Jesus, be careful of finding the speck in their eye and overlooking all the times where you've taken advantage of his grace as well, okay? That's that's, that's where we all got to be very, very careful. So, in order to get this idea of sanctification and being purified, we have to understand this concept. It's gonna keep coming up over and over again if you follow Jesus. It's this truth of the already and the not yet. Here's what I mean by this. Are you already purified before Jesus? Are you already pure? When he looks at you, does, does he see the, the, the purity of his son? If you're in Christ, Jesus has forgiven you of your sins, you stand before God pure. Has that something that has already happened if you're in Christ? Yes, okay? But again, where you sit in your butt, in your chair, or wherever you're watching online, and me up here in my sneakers, do I feel perfectly pure before God? Not yet. Not, not never, but not yet. And so there's this thing that we have to embrace in Christianity that is the already of salvation, but the not yet, there's still the sanctification that needs to happen. But in the middle ground, I'm justified. And so I've got to stop living like I'm trying to be perfect. I've got to understand that that God's goal for me isn't for me to be perfect. Perfection was Jesus. You can't be perfect. Good luck. I've tried. It's hard. It's impossible. You can't be the perfect one. So perfection happened at salvation. As a perfect son, life is traded for your imperfect, sinful, jacked up, screwed up, messed up life. And now our goal down here is the sanctification progress. So what this means is our, our goal is not perfection. Perfection is achieved in Christ. 
So we've got to embrace this tension between the perfection that is ours in Christ and our goal down here is not perfection. Our goal down here is progression. I've got to continue to progress into a person who is more and more Jesus in McDonough, Henry, Stockbridge, Hampton, Locust Grove, Griffin, even Ola. I am Jesus everywhere my feet go. I am progressing less and less into this sin-bound, flesh-driven person. I'm progressing more and more into Jesus as we in partnership kill my flesh. Because it's a partnership. This is why salvation is, is a, is a Working together with God. There's a passage I love, and not just because it mentions working out, but in Philippians chapter 12, verse two, Paul's talking to the church there, or chapter two, verse 12. Sorry, I got that backwards. Number dyslexia kicking in. Philippians chapter two, verse 12. Paul's talking to him and he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what that doesn't mean is you work to earn your salvation. What he is saying is salvation has been worked into you by faith in Christ. Salvation has been worked in. It's an inward work. You are saved, your soul, that inside part of you, that's taken care of. But on this outside, ladies and gentlemen, we have this flesh that has a pull, strong pull. And so we, in partnership with the salvation that has been worked in, we now work with Jesus to work out our salvation so that that perfection that's happened on the inside progresses to our outside. So that when people see us, they don't see our past. They see who Jesus is making us to be, him. So this is is what it means for Jesus to be purifier. And what does it mean to be purified by Jesus? Now, the next thing he says in here, I told you there were two. Because after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What we see here is Jesus is not just purifier, but when it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that means that Jesus is number seven. He is the ruler. Made the purification for sin and he sat down at the right hand of God. Really cool stuff here. Check this out. So he makes a purification for sin and he sat down. Now this, if you're a Hebrew, you would have read this and go, what? Priests aren't supposed to sit down because all the times when the people would come in, and, and this is what you would have done if you lived back in the Old Testament time and you were an uh, Israelite or you were Jewish. You would come in, you would bring in your little lamb or whatever that you grew up, and you're like, hey, uh, priest guy, this is why I need to, you to sacrifice for the sins of my family. And this is gruesome, and I'm sorry, but the Bible made it this way. You would take the lamb, and then you would say as many as you could of your family's sins. You let them, list them all out. And then you would put your hand on the lamb and then the priest would take his hand, you, know, two, you guys working together, and he would slit the throat of the lamb. Blood everywhere. Sorry if this is gross. This is how God wanted it to be. And that blood was supposed to cover your sins transferring on to the sacrificial lamb. Now, what the priest would do is as all that has happened, family after family after family after family after family is coming up and this has happened to them, the priest remains standing. The reason that he does that, the reason the priest remains standing is to symbolically represent that there is never a time when there is not going to be purification for their sins that needs to take place. And so he remains standing because the purifying work was not and never would have been finished if it was just lambs that go by. So there was a different kind of lamb that had to come onto the scene. And that's why we see these words from our savior in John nineteen thirty, 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, this is Jesus on the cross being crucified. When he received the sour wine, that's the last thing he did from the cross. He screams out and he says, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So why does our passage in Hebrew say that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God? It says that because once Jesus gave his life for you, once the blood was spilled and he breathed his last, it was finished. There's no more work to be done. Jesus crosses his legs. He goes and sits down. He says, it's done. It's over. We win. I've done everything that I could do. And he sits down at the right hand of God, knowing good and well that what he did secured a passageway into eternal relationship with the heavenly father for people like me, people like you. He says, it is finished. And how dumb do we have to be to go, okay, Jesus, you're sitting down, you're going, it is finished, but I'm out here. I got to really, you know, let me pay God back. How many of us would be willing to admit, maybe in the confines of our own heart, the way we treat our sin and the way we treat the punishment that we deserve or the things that need to happen, we don't live, it is finished lives. We live, there's still some work to do. We live, uh, God can't love somebody like me. But Jesus is like, no, 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 friend. It it is finished. I don't ask for you being perfect. I made you perfect. When you put your faith in me, I'm after some progress. So he comes on the scene. He says these words, it is finished. And what this tells us is that he's going to be a king who's going to rule and reign. And he doesn't come into a kingdom and invite you into his democracy. This is not a kingdom where you get a vote. He says, if I'm going to be the purifier of your life, if I'm going to go through what I went through on the cross for your sins, I'm the only way. And this is a little narrow way. You tried it as yourself being king and that didn't go really well. I'm coming on the scene as a new king. And what he says, both in the Old Testament and the new, is what this kingdom is like. He says, this is David talking about this conversation between the father and the son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The, in, the right hand symbolized the equality with God, the Father, that was in Jesus, God, the Son. And there's another passage in uh, Philippians 2, New Testament. Paul's writing this. This is after Jesus came, gave his life, resurrected, ascended back into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write these words. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Now, this guy's right here. You, it doesn't matter um, how good you've done or how bad you've done at life. It doesn't matter what part of the country you live in. It doesn't matter if, if you're thinking of the person who lives out in a tribe in the middle of the Amazon who's never been reached for God. Every person, every soul is gonna give an account for what they did with Jesus whether or not they put faith and trust in him or whether they tried it their way. But regardless of if they believed in Jesus and surrendered to him with the life that they had or they denied him or rebelled against him, there is going to be a moment, according to this passage, I believe this with everything in my being, there's gonna be a moment where every soul that has ever existed in all of humanity is gonna scream out and say, you are the Lord of Lords, you are the King of Kings. And it will be said with either guilt and shame behind it because it refused to acknowledge that when it was due time or it will be said with an exclamation of absolute joy because when the time was made available to them to accept him as Lord and Savior, they fully did. 
And friend, that time for you and me is right now. So if he's this king and he's supposedly on this throne at the right hand of God, maybe the question you find yourself asking is this one like I was doing this week, well, what is he doing? Like if that's where Jesus is, and this is part of his identity and I know who he is and what he does helps me understand what I do down here. What in the world is he doing on this throne? Hebrews 7.25 hopefully opens our eyes to this a little bit. It says, consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. What that means, friend, is you are not too far gone. He saves to the uttermost. So think about how low you could possibly go, and he goes lower. Think about how far you could possibly run, and he runs further. Think about how broken your life can be, and he can still heal it. He saves to the uttermost. So don't lose hope. You think, it's utter, you think it is utterly broken. And friend, hear me today. He saves, he heals, he restores, he redeems, he puts back together to the uttermost. Those who draw near to him, to God through him, since he always, and I love this word right here, he lives to make an intercession for them. So what this means, this is Jesus. He's gonna spend eternity in heaven with the Father. He's waiting on, you know, time to be right. He's gonna come and redeem and restore everything here on earth. All, all this broken, so he's gonna put back together all the tears. He's gonna bind up. He's gonna wipe a tear from every eye and he's gonna re- make, make earth heaven, okay? So track with me. In the meantime though, <clears throat> he's sitting at the right hand of God and it says he loves and he lives to make intercession for us, if we're in him. Now what that when you hear that, you can go, oh, that's just prayer. Like Jesus is just up there like, oh, please be with Barry. He's, you know, got a big job thing this week. And, you know, please be with Linda. She's, you know, she's got, you know, some health stuff. And it, Jesus is not just up in heaven with this like 24-7 prayer meeting with God. That's not just what that means. Now, is Jesus interceding with you in conversation with the Father? Yes. But here's some of what this means. <clears throat> and this is for those of you who go like, have a hard time getting your mind around like, how in the world does Jesus forgive my future sin? Well, this is what intercession is all about. <laughs> this, is, this is God the Father um, and Jesus sitting together in heaven right before I'm getting ready to get on I-75. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus being like, hey, I'm, I'm about to have to intercede for probably what's going to happen right here. <laughs> you know? This, this, this is Jesus there. Again, he lives to do this. He lives. This is what's so mind-blowing. Get, grasp this. Every time, like he lives to remind us that he died. Every sin, everyone that's going to happen in the future. He's sitting by the father going, I got that one too. And that one too. That one and that one and the next ones and the ones you're going to commit 20 years from now. He lives to remind us and he sends scripture like this to remind us. I live to make intercession to remind you that I already died for those sins. And this is what's wild. This is how God wants to lead you to transformation in your life. It's not to see how broken, messed up, and jacked up you are, but to see how much Jesus recklessly and just scandalously loves your jacked up butt. Like, I mean, (laughs) like I'm just up here, Forgiven and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And, and I died for that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. And please just take a second and pause and realize the magnitude of God's grace is how it's been poured out on you. 
It's like, I, li- I live to make this intercession. Now, does he want you to change and to be different? Oh, goodness, yes. But I think so many times we just try to do this behavior modification and we get in our mind that Jesus just loves some um, future version of ourself. Like, does Jesus love the future version of you? For sure. But he's not waiting for you to get there, for you to fully experience his love. Like the you who you are right now, mess and all, still has the fullness of his love and fullness of the Father's love and the full guidance of the Holy Spirit. And this gives me, this gives me crazy hope, guys. I come from... uh, In my family tree, there's been a lot of addiction. Like the Shoemake name had a few different addictions tied to it. Whether it be alcohol, whether it be substances, whether it be pornography. I still remember as a nosy uh, six or seven year old kid going into a sock drawer, finding a magazine that seven-year-old should never find. And, and, and these verses that we have a king who is purifying us, this king who is saying, I am gonna partner with you to free you from this because man, I have felt, like many of you in this room, like I have felt that pull. We're like a lot in me wanted just to continue the trajectory and continue to be a, a, a guy who made the shoemaker name look like what more and more it had represented. But passages like this give me hope because it promises that there is a purifier whose purifying work is happening in me. So what this means is those chains and those sins, they can't own me anymore. They can't own you anymore if you're in Christ. It means there's hope. It means that you don't have to be like your father. It means that you don't have to be like your mother. It means that Jesus is pointing you and connecting you to the father who is truly who you've been called to be. And I mean, again, this should just make us go, okay, there's hope for me. There's hope for me down here. And so what do we do with this? Man, I wanna talk to two groups of people. First group of people is the people who, man, you have not put your hope and your trust and your faith in Christ. And if that's you in the room and you're like, I've never surrendered my life to Christ. I've never prayed one of those prayers you're talking about. I've never been baptized. I've never done that. Here's what I would say. Jesus is purifier. And you can keep trying to scrub and scrub your life and try to make it look clean. You can keep deleting browser history. You can keep doing all those things. But friend, you will not be able to purify yourself There's only one who can purify you. And the only path to purification is the blood of Christ. And if you are not under the blood, then there is no purification that you will ever be able to receive. And the father doesn't let impure into his presence. That's why the father sent the son out of his presence to take on all of your impurity and die the death that you deserve to die so that you can be purified, stand fully before him, justified, as if you had never sinned, you were spotless, without blemish, white as snow by the blood of Christ. He's purifier and he wants to purify you. It's time to take the play shoes off. Some of your life is like play shoes. You know what I'm talking about, right? You got kids, you got church shoes, you got play shoes. Can I wear these shoes, mama? Yeah, that's fine. I don't care if they get dirty. They're play shoes. That's how many of you guys' souls are right now. You, got, you, you tried to keep them clean. 
You weren't able to. So you just kind of give up on cleanliness. You're like, I don't really care what I step in with these. I don't really care where I go with these. I don't really care what I stumble into or stumble upon in these shoes. Because these are my play shoes. Listen, here's what you understand about Jesus. He's not coming to give you a scrub brush and hydrogen peroxide and soap and hand it. Like a lot of you, that's the version of Christianity that you grew up on. Like that's the church you went to before here. That Jesus says, all right, your shoes are really messed up. Here's all the things you need to rejuvenate your shoes. Have fun scrubbing. That's not Jesus, guys. That is not Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I don't come to make what you have better. I come to give you something new. I come to give you my life. Here's this new pair. Now look, <laughs> this walk is gonna be awkward at times. This walk is, is, is going to be, uh, so you're gonna stumble at times, but I'm telling you where these shoes will eventually lead is to the Father. Step by step, walk with me and we'll get there. But you have to step into those shoes. You have to step into that purity. The other side is the king side. And many of in this room, like <clears throat> you've tried to be king of your life. And that hasn't gone that well. You try to make up your own rules. You try to rule your own kingdom. You try to set your own standards. You've tried to um, provide for yourself and build your business and build your stuff. And, and, and everybody's got to kind of worship you at your altar. And you've had a hard time being king of your life because what you found is your rules stink and you can't even live up to them. And you can't save yourself and you can't provide for yourself. You make a bad king of your life. And other people are left in the wake of your bad decisions, my bad decisions. When I try to play king and I try to sit on the throne of my life and rule it, we were never created to be king. We were created to allow Jesus to be king and to rule in his kingdom and allow us to enter into that kingdom and submit to his rule and his authority. When I say, Jesus, I want you to make me pure, what I'm also saying there is, Jesus, you're king. You sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now I submit to your will and to your way. Not mine anymore. I'm off the throne of my life. And I'll, I'll, I'll quote, because I could not find a, a better way to drive this point home to you. The uh, secular, albeit, but secular theologians, the band Metallica, and a song they wrote, uh, oh, it's good, trust me, a song that they wrote called King Nothing. And I, outside of scripture, could not have found a better way to drive this point home to you if you are not in Christ, because this is your reality. See, the world writes songs. Here's what, like everybody wants to like bash everything that's in the world, but here's like, careful. Sometimes you can study the things of the world to learn the depravity of the world. Not for a sake of going like, I'm gonna try to like grow closer to Christ from this, but I'm gonna understand how Satan wants to mess up and undermine all these people and who I was before him. And these are the lyrics of the song. Check this out. All the wants you waste, all the things you've chased, and it all crashes down, and you break your crown, and you point your finger, but there's no one around. You just want one thing, just to play the king. But the castle crumbled, and you're left with just a name. Where's your crown, king nothing? Where's your crown? If you want a real king, Submit to the King of Kings today. And what that looks like, this is where King and purification happens. It's through baptism. 
is I surrender to the king and I take the first step, the first orders of his new kingdom is to allow your old life to be washed away and to be raised up new. And so I'm gonna invite you, if you've never surrendered to Christ, surrender to him through baptism today. I'll be right out there in the back, right at the back of the room. You just get up and you're not gonna make you come up to the altar and get you know, all that other type of stuff. You just stand up as we sing the last song today and you come back there and we have everything we need to baptize you today. Do not delay that. Second group of people I wanna to talk to are those of you who are in Christ. You've surrendered, you've been baptized, you've made those decisions in your life. Here's what I wanna walk you through because I'm where you're at here. It gets hard down here because we're not who we want to be yet. And what happens sometimes, we say we're Christians, we live out this Christian life, and then oftentimes we'll do something stupid, whether it's to our kids, to our spouse, maybe at work, maybe to someone we're in community group with or at church or something. And we'll say uh, this line right here. That's not me. This is usually when we're trying to like, fellas, this is us when we're trying to ease back in. Like we just got a big knockdown, drag out argument with our wife and we said something we know we shouldn't have said. And like, it's been quiet for like three days. This has just been a cold, cold home, man. <laughs> and we come in, we ease into the argument, you know, we ease into the conversation or maybe we send a text if we're a coward. Um, And we say these words like, hey, babe, that's not me. Or you, or you blow up at your kids for some little small thing. You had a terrible day at work. Your kids are just being annoying because that's how kids are. You just blow up on them and I got to tuck them in the bed going, hey, buddy, man, I'm sorry I got angry at you. That's not daddy. That's not me. Here, here's, here's a bad news I want to break to you. No, that is you. And Jesus is letting you see those things so that you can see you. All those moments when you blow up, like stop saying that's not me, that is you. That, here's what you need to understand. That's probably way more truer than you, than the, than the person who like is in the car, your kids are blue, losing your mind, you're ready to lose your mind on them and you just take a few deep breaths and you know, Jesus, take the wheel. Like that is probably not you. The more actual you is the one who loses their mind, who says the thing they never should have said, who lies about somebody at work to try to get ahead of them at work. That really is you. That's you without Jesus. And Jesus will continue to let you see that version of you over and over and over again so that you stop. Satan's lie is that. Oh, that's not me. I'm a way better person than that. No. Jesus is going, I need you to understand that that is you without me. That's you without me. <laughs> and that's the part of you I'm, I'm trying to sanctify. I'm trying to purify that out of you. And so this week, when you start bumping into some of this, man, you get an argument, you get something going on at home. Hey, hey, listen, what I said or what I did is me at my worst. Will you partner with me in prayer so that that part of me can die and never come back? That's what a gospel-centered marriage talks like. Gospel-centered parenting talks like, hey, son, I blew up at you today in the car. And I want you to know that daddy's a work in progress. And that's part of me that I hope you never become. I'm sorry. I want that part of me to die off so that you never have to see that again. Don't lie to him. Don't lie to your kids. Don't lie to your spouse. Don't lie to your family. Don't lie to your friends. Say, that's not me. No, that is you. And here's, what, here's where the hope comes in. I don't want you to feel like I'm crushing you here. When you start doing some good stuff, so you, you see some good stuff coming out of your life. <laughs> you, 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 those moments where um, you just swallow and, and, and bite your tongue if you have to and do what somebody else 
you know is the wrong decision or something in marriage where you're like, hey, this, uh, this preference or whatever, and you're just like, I'm just gonna go with the flow here and I'm gonna seek to serve you and put your needs before mine. When that happens, there's just part of us that wants to go, okay, that's me, that's me. That's the me I wanna be. That's a good version of me. Like that's the put my wife first version of me. That's the nice to the kids. That's a good employee version of me. Same remains true here. You go, that's not me either. That's Jesus. The me that was patient with the kids, the me that was the first to forgive after the argument, the me that let other people at work get attention, the me that gave to the person who was in need that I encountered this week, that's not, my, that's not me either. That's Jesus. And what I wanna see in my life, what I wanna see in our church, it's less and less of us and more and more of Jesus. And that's really what communion is all about. Us being able to go, Jesus, it is only by your blood that we can look to a cross. And when you look at the cross, here, here's one of the things that we sometimes get missed. When you look at the cross, there should be this part of you that says the same thing that's up on the screen. That's not me. Like, <laughs> OMG, that's not me. I'm supposed to be up there. I'm supposed to be on that cross, but that's not me. It's him. And so if, if that's what he would do for me, I surrender this whole entire life for him. So that the person whose life and love for me would lead to that would flow out of my life so that I can be a carry my cross type of person where I live, where I work, where I play and the people that I call my church family. So as you commune with him today, take the broken body, take the poured out blood and be thankful that it wasn't you and let him transform you into who he is. And if you wanna give your life to Christ, you wanna surrender to baptism, again, we have shorts, we have shirts, we have everything that you need possibly to do that, even underwear. Uh, we have everything that you need to do that. You have no excuse. If God and the Holy Spirit is moving you, um, I'll be back there in the back room. I'd love to be able to baptize you into Christ today. Let's pray and we'll sing. Jesus, move in the midst of your people today. We praise you for all that you are and all that you're making us into because we know that what you're making us into is not us, it's you. I pray that your word that I know has gone out today would not return void. I pray that the seeds that were sown today land in fertile ground that bears fruit for this church and for this community for months and months and years and years and generations and generations to come. And I pray that you would set people free from the strongholds that they've walked in for so long, Jesus. That they would walk in, not just forgiveness of sin, but in freedom from shame as well. We love you. You're here with us. We feel you in this room. In your name.